Hello and welcome to the Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds. Today I'm with Dr. Ryan Putman, the author of When Doctrine Divides the People of God. Ryan, welcome to the program. Thank you, Josh. Glad to be with you. Now, I've really been looking forward to our conversation today because uh, your book kind of hits at a very important part of theology uh, because in my experience as a pastor um, Christians and this is lay people on through academics and pastors alike tend to instead of finding themselves united on the things they agree with we define ourselves by where we disagree and that's true in denominational divides that can be true in specific communities between different churches within the same denomination. Uh, we seem to like we're always looking for the areas that, yes, make us stand out and make us different. Uh, but we 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 do that in terms of how um, how we can separate ourselves from other believers rather than finding ourselves united with them. So. Tell me a little bit about the background of this book and why you felt it was necessary to uh, a necessary topic to talk about. Well, Josh, it's like you said, this is something that we as Christians have always dealt with, and it's just part of human nature. Uh, Sigmund Freud used the phrase that I've used in the book on a couple of occasions, the narcissism of minor differences. And uh, what that basically means is we do uh, we do uh, draw um, distinguishing lines between uh, ourselves from other people, usually based on sometimes very minor differences between the way we think and, and we feel and we 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 practice our beliefs. And uh, you know we see this in the in the Bible as well. I mean I, I think the, the place where it becomes uh, the most evident is, you know, when you look at the, the conflicts within Judaism in the first century, um, you know, oftentimes, oftentimes it was it was the Jewish groups that had the most in common that would sometimes have the greatest disagreements. And uh, that happens in the church as well. Um, I think what really sort of pushed me like and just just sheer frustration with the way that Christians handle their disagreements on on social media platforms. And, uh, I mean, again, we've always had theological differences. We've always found ways to express our theological differences. You know, I begin the book by talking about uh, the Protestant Reformation, and, and at that time they had this new form of media which was the movable printing press by which they expressed their disagreements. But now, you know, the the we have all all have a um, a means by which we can sort of put our opinion out there. And um and it's it said that the Bible put the hands uh, I'm sorry, the Reformation put the Bible in the hands of every believer. Uh the age of Facebook and Twitter and, you know, social media in general has put a platform in the hands of every individual to express his or her opinion. And so sometimes we don't handle our differences delicately. Sometimes we uh, 
overstate our differences. But I think a lot of times what my fundamental concern is that we bring damage to our witness with the way that we handle our disagreements. So I wanted to try to help people understand what is it that that drives us to disagree about doctrine? How can can people who affirm the gospel, people who affirm the authority of Scripture, come to such disagreements, and what should we do about those disagreements? Right. And there, my experience in the church is that 99.9% of all of these disagreements are on matters of doctrine or even sometimes matters of opinion that really don't have anything to do with doctrine as expressed in scripture uh, that they they can matter but they are not really matters of orthodoxy um, so right. can, can you talk a little bit about like obviously there is a there there is a time to properly divide and there is right. a time to properly have disagreements, uh, but agree to disagree and understand right. that this is a debated topic. And then there are times where we can should understand this is a difference of opinion or a difference of tradition. How do we know, the, like, how do we determine the difference between those things? Sure. Well, first and foremost, let me let me just define my own theological perspective in a, in a broad sense, and I, I guess it's the shared theological perspective of your audience. We're evangelicals, and evangelicals um, embrace the gospel. That's where we get our name. It's from the, from the euangelion, the gospel, the good news, the message of Jesus. And evangelicals have prioritized the authority of Scripture, the full truthfulness of Scripture, um, and we prioritize the need for every single individual um, to come into the saving knowledge of Christ, that apart from Christ there is no salvation. Apart from Christ there is um, a hopelessness and, and God's condemnation. Um, so we have prioritized what Christ has done for us, the way that Christ has... Um, has sacrificed himself on the cross for our uh, benefit, for our salvation, and that we are justified when we're made right by faith alone in Christ. That's what brings evangelicals together, no matter what their particular denomination may be, whether it's, you know, a Baptist, a Presbyterian, a Methodist, Assembly of God, you know, uh, across the spectrum of, of evangelical belief, those sort of tenets keep us together. Now, if you were to go outside of our, you know, group of evangelicalism, you might find in in more liberal theological traditions, sometimes in mainline Protestantism, a rejection of the authority of Scripture, or at least a minimizing of the Bible's authority. Um, you might find tendencies towards um, uh, you know inclusivism or or some sort of pluralism that that basically says explicit faith in Jesus isn't necessary in the case of inclusivism 
or in the case of pluralism, Jesus is just but one way to God. And uh, and so it's obvious to me when you when you make those kind of claims where there's going to be a real need for division, uh, because, you know, if, if we are going to disagree, if we disagree about the foundational source um, of our theology, of our doctrine, uh, if you don't hold the Bible, the, the Bible's authority or take seriously the truthfulness of Scripture, then, of course, we're going to come to disagreements. It becomes a little bit more curious to me what happens when we do have so much in common, but yet we we still sort of land in different places on second and third tier issues, usually about things like how we do church. Um, there's a lot of disagreement about that. Or like we all might agree that we're saved by grace through faith, but we might disagree about exactly what God is doing in salvation and things like, you know, that scary word predestination, or we might all agree that Jesus is coming back uh, and and going to make things right again, but we disagree fundamentally about how and when that's going to take place. And, uh, and so usually our differences among evangelicals are in what I would call second or third tier uh, sort of areas, not over something as important as the gospel or as important as biblical authority. Mm-hmm. And yet those seem to be the issues that we like to divide on, even though they are not, and I'm not going to say they don't have any importance, uh, even though they are not matters yeah. of orthodoxy. Um Right. You know, I, we we just have have this tendency to really gravitate toward um, these these pet doctrines because I, I feel like because of that, um, you know, I've known individuals whose whose theology, whose you know, whose who's eschatology and their their particular belief system uh, regarding the end times is way more developed than their personal knowledge or theology of the gospel. Uh, you know, they can tell you, you know, without looking at any notes or anything, um, this is my exact precise belief of when what plague is going to happen at what time, it, it, you know, and, and the end times. But th- like that's where the focus is like that. That's what that seems to be the kind of doctrines that Christians want to to run after, you know, left behind. Sure. Didn't sell tens of millions of copies of books. Um, because it was an expression of the orthodox uh, doctrines of Christian faith, but because it was more the sensationalist. Um, some of and, and how I mean, we can understand these things are important, um, and they're they're widely, widely, widely different. So we're all coming back to the same source. We're all coming back to the same uh, scriptures to to determine these doctrines, to find these beliefs, how do we end up with such different views when we're trying to come from the same source material? Well, you know, I I had a conversation with some fine, sweet lay people in church a few years ago, and we were talking about eschatology. The question came up, and, you know, they basically asserted a position 
that they had heard their pastor for many years uh, preach on, pastor that they dearly loved, and, you know, the pastor, you know, spent a lot of time harping on this eschatological issue, and I just kind of expressed disagreement. You know, that's not the way that I interpret, you know, those those passages that are in question, and they looked at me, and they asked me, you know, very plainly, do you not believe the Bible? <laughs> and I think that's sort of where the tension um, lies for a lot of people, is sometimes we have a way of confusing the inerrancy of the Bible with the inerrancy of our interpretation of the Bible. In other words, if you don't agree with my view on eschatology, if you don't agree with my view on the age of the earth, if you don't agree with my view on election, which is so plain and so clear from my reading of the Bible, you might give lip service to biblical authority, but obviously you don't place your lives under the authority of the Bible. So as someone who studied a lot about the way our doctrines are formulated, someone who studied a lot about the way we interpret Scripture, the processes by which we interpret Scripture, I was convinced, and I still am convinced, that if we have a better understanding of the way that we move from the Bible to our doctrinal positions, I think that that would help us sort of treat our disagreements with a little bit more um, with a little bit more gentleness and being a little bit more delicate in how we handle these matters. Mm-hmm. You you specifically point out five different ways. Uh, in which we approach scripture that sort of lead to these differences. And the, the first one of those is, is that we, we read scripture imperfectly. Um, so we're all reading the same book, but how do we, so how do we, it, it's very, it, like, it, I think if you say we're, we, we read imperfectly, it implies that there is a perfect reading. And most people would say, I'm the person who has that perfect reading. Right. <laughs> um, you know how 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 are we, how do we be sure that like okay we can even understand this isn't a core doctrine this isn't a matter related to orthodoxy uh, but I have some cons- you know I have some level of confidence that I am reading this correctly how do we begin that debate when we're talking to someone else who also believes that they're reading scripture correctly. How you know is there an objective yeah. determination on what you know how how each of these various interpretations should be evaluated? Sure, sure. Well, there's a tension that we deal with, and uh, one of the tensions that we have to deal with in in some form or fashion is um, the the idea that that we're presented with in modernity that. Um, that we can have superior knowledge of the world around us, that we can have kind of a perfect objective knowledge of reality. And then the 
postmodern alternative because we can't have such objective knowledge. We can't know anything. And um, what I really wanted to contend for, number one, is what we call the clarity of Scripture. That is, that not that the Bible is easily understood in every circumstance, because that's clearly not the case, uh, but what that means historically for the Reformers is that the Bible is intelligible. God has communicated himself in such a way that we can grasp the meaning of the biblical text. But at the same time, acknowledge, as you said, we are imperfect interpreters of Scripture, that we have certain limitations that are built into our interpretive processes, some of which are, you know, really kind of obvious. You know, some people are more intelligent than others. Um, you know, I, I, I have friends who have a complete mastery of biblical Hebrew. I do not. And uh, and usually, you know, when we get into a disagreement, of, at least about the grammar of an Old Testament passage, um, I will often defer to what they say uh, because I, I, I know that I'm not um, I'm not an expert on Hebrew grammar or or you know biblical languages in general. Um, so intelligence can and, and skill sets can affect the way that we read and 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 come to our interpretations of biblical text. I think also. Um, our time and place in history can shape the way that we read the Bible, sometimes in ways that we're not always aware. We bring certain assumptions about what words mean to biblical text, and so on and so forth. So these things can sometimes distort the way we read the Bible. Um, but the goal, and it's a goal that we can always strive for, is to try to understand the authorial and of Scripture as best as we can, and that means that we're always learning, we're always trying to know more about the world of the Bible, we're always trying to better understand the context of a passage, the context of a book in the canon, and um, I think, I think again, what I would say is the Bible is intelligible. And it's clear enough that we can understand what is most important for us to understand. And there's just some things that because we don't have all the clues, we don't have all the background knowledge, some things in Scripture will uh, remain debated and mysterious for us until um, you know, the, until we get to see Jesus face to face and get some of these questions answered for us. I think one thing that's really important for us to remember, and this is something that Gordon Fee and Doug Stewart say in their in their very important book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, is that none of the Bible is written directly to us. I mean, as 21st century Christians, human biblical authors did not write directly to us. But... All of the Bible is written for us, and and that's that's the work of God in the inspiration of text, the biblical text that extends throughout every age of history. So oftentimes when we're reading, say, Paul's letters, we're reading other people's mail. Um, 
Paul is writing to situations where they know the situation, um, but we're just kind of having to to do detective work and sort of guess what the situation is. We're trying to we're trying to imaginatively sort of fill in the gaps in our knowledge, and that's just an imperfect process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that idea that you have to read scripture contextually and kind of get into you know a first and you know, really have the eyes of the original reader um, is so important, but it's something that is is sometimes lacking. Um, uh, we, we, you can't read scripture like it was written in the 21st century. And I think sometimes we can miss out on that because we have versions of scripture that are in our language, uh, that not just our language, but in a, in a modern, uh, type of our language. And, um, we, we sort of insert our own, cultural um our, our own cultural backgrounds our own political backgrounds our own economic backgrounds um, our own personal history so we have these different biases we have these different feelings that that can even cause us to like reason differently and these are all different things that you talk about in your book um that affect our view of scripture so can you give me some of the examples of how these subjective things inside of us can affect different interpretive points of Scripture? Sure. So, uh, again, like I, I spoke about a moment ago, sometimes we are sort of kind of creatively trying to fill in the blanks. And uh, an example that, that I w- often appeal to is, is Paul's discussion of tongues and worship in 1 Corinthians 14. Paul is writing to a church that, for whatever reason, they're having, they're having some well, – Corinthians have a lot of issues. But one of the issues that they have is, is disorder in worship. And um, – you know, they have been using this gift of tongues. Um, they have, um, you know, Paul even talks in 1 Corinthians, uh, you know, 13 about, you know, a desire for, for, for them to have these greater gifts. Um, however, there's no point in the letter where Paul just sits down and gives us a dictionary definition of what tongues are. And, you know, for whatever reason, we all we all bring some different opinions to the text because we're trying to make sense of what that means. But he didn't have to define it for the Corinthians. The Corinthians know because they've had these conversations. Paul is writing to established churches, not 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 unestablished churches. He's writing to churches that he self-established. So they have a common vocabulary. We're trying to work to to figure out um, what what what's you know going on there in the passage. So different subjective things happen. I mean, we can we can sort of plug in our own definition of what tongues is, and that can that can come from um, 
you know, our, uh, our, you know, theological tradition sometimes, um, we can, you know, if we come from a, from a, from a more charismatic tradition, we might have, we might have some experience that we bring to the table that we, that we sort of use to fill in those gaps. Um, sometimes it, it might come from a reasoning process that, uh, that, we've again tried to make some creative guesses or we picked from a theological tradition uh, what the gift of tongues is. And uh, then other times we, we lean heavy on things like our feelings uh, or, or what we, what we sense or what we feel is the right way to understand and make sense of a text. And so the, the, you mentioned the, the five categories that I talk about in the book. I talk about, we read imperfectly. We read. We read differently. We use different hermeneutical approaches to text. We reason differently. We feel differently, and we have different biases. And um, and all of those things can kind of come into play when we're talking about differences over things like baptism in the biblical text. Differences over things like how we run a church. And uh, and differences over things like election. Mm-hmm. How how important should we keep these second order doctrines, um, doctrines that are you know important maybe to our specific tradition or denomination, uh, but are not a part of orthodoxy? How strongly should we hold and defend and fight for? A particular interpretation of those doctrines well it's like you alluded to earlier Josh they are important but they're not the most important thing so I, 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 we can't ignore the fact that we have convictions about what we believe the Bible says for us to do and again the, the example that I often appeal to is baptism mm-hmm. you know I am a Baptist by conviction because you know that's the way I read and interpret, um, you know, the biblical um, order of baptism that a person uh, believes first and then follows that conscious belief in baptism. So that's important to me, and I and I, I what I would find difficult to do is to be part of a church where I don't think that they are following the biblical prescription or order of baptism. So, I mean, it's, it's a secondary issue, but it is an issue that at least will affect the practice of a local church together and will affect the, the sort of, you know, tradition in which you find yourself or, or denomination in which you find yourself. So I think on the one hand, hey, Yes, that will divide us to a degree. We we're gonna we're gonna have churches across the street from one another. You know that's 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 gonna that's gonna happen. But on the other hand, if we are evangelicals and we are focused on the kingdom and not necessarily building our own little denominational empires, we can have shared concern for a community. We can do work together. Um, as local churches doing ministry and outreach because we have a common goal of wanting to see people come to faith in Jesus. 
um, and want to see God's kingdom built. And so there is a place, I think, oftentimes for things like uh, evangelical or evangelistic crusades, um, you know, different sort of ministries to, to you know, um, unwed mothers or, you know, the various different things that evangelicals find themselves joining hands and doing together. Mm-hmm. One of the things you bring up in the second part of the, of the book, you have a chapter that's just entitled, When Should We Change Our Minds? And I think that, that to me, was a very important chapter uh, because it, number one, acknowledges the fact that there might be a time when we, when we do need to change our mind. Uh, either we have gone from, from ignorance on a certain topic to being informed by it and therefore we've changed our position or sometimes we've gone from informed on one topic but through study and reflection uh, we've changed our mind on the interpretation of a certain passage or of a certain doctrine Uh, so at what point i guess just to answer the question of the title uh, at what point should we change our minds on certain things it really sort of depends on the doctrinal topic or question in hand, and I think oftentimes the experience that we've had wrestling through and dealing with those issues. Um, You know, I begin that chapter talking about, you know, Augustine. Augustine wrote a book toward the end of his ministry career called Retractions, and uh and they, they weren't major differences, but what he does is he goes and and looks and evaluates, you know, his his writing career, and he says, here are points where I think I was was right, and here are some points where I I think that I would I've changed my position. And I think you know any thoughtful Christian over time will experience some changes in his or her. Uh, reading of the Bible as they sort of reflect on what they once thought to be the case and what they changed their mind on at a later point in time. A lot of, a lot of times for us, it's, it's really just sort of minor issues. As an evangelical Christian, to want to do so under the authority of Scripture. I know that you, you sometimes see people moving from, you know, a conservative position to a more liberal position on things like sexuality and oftentimes that's driven by experience, you know, like uh, some people say that, you know, like, well, I have, I have, you know, friends that are in same-sex loving relationships, and they just seem to be such nice people. That might very well be the case, but experience doesn't drive my views on sexuality. The authority of Scripture does. And, uh, and and so that's that's one thing I want to say has to be stable for the people of God. However, you know, like when it when it comes to things like the interpretation of a particular passage, sometimes we we might read uh, a commentary that might change our mind because it's just a really well argued comment, uh, uh, you know, sort of exploration of that text. Sometimes. Uh, you change your mind with 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 a with a better and deeper understanding of the original language. Um, sometimes when you when you when you see a passage in in its context more clearly, you'll change your mind. 
And then I then I say that there are some times when you see two equally intelligent people, two people who have spent an equal amount of time studying uh, this passage in question, um, but yet still come to different conclusions. And 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 there are instances where it's completely appropriate, I think to hold on to your belief, to keep on maintaining your belief until uh, better proof comes along. And then I think there are other times when you either change your mind or you say, on this particular issue, I am going to, you know, kind of withhold or withdraw judgment until a later time when I have more knowledge. And uh, again, I'm not going to change my perspective on the gospel. I'm not going to change my perspective on what it what it means to to become a believer in Jesus. But I, I, I do recognize, you know, things like when Paul's talking about baptism for the dead in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, you know, I, I don't know a lot about what he's talking about there. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to probably withhold my judgment. I mean, I've seen a commentary that has like 11 or 12 different explanations of that of that verse nobody knows you know (laughs) yeah i think for myself personally what i have found is that um i not not so much the the, some some beliefs i have changed and some beliefs i think most beliefs i i find that i i hold i hold them more loosely i'm not as dogmatic about them as i used to be and right. that is mostly due to an understanding that there are very intelligent people who are experts in their field uh, who disagree or have a different opinion on you know this certain doctrine. And you know I'm going to acknowledge that you know I am not an expert. Uh, so all I all I can do is read the experts that have different opinions and sort of right. use my own critical thinking skills to determine. Uh, which seems to be the strongest argument, and um, you know some of that is well, why did I hold the original belief? Did I did I hold my original belief because it was tradition for me? Because it's what I was taught as a child? Uh, do I have any backing for it? Because sometimes it can be oh my belief changed uh, one direction because when I grew up. This was presented to me as this is what you believe. It wasn't really presented to me why I believe that. So the moment that I then find a very well reasoned, uh, you know, very well presented counter argument, and then I'm like, well, that I have to follow that. That makes sense because now I have a reason. Uh, but then I right. go back, and I the problem might be that I've never really critically evaluated. that original position that I held, that original tradition. Uh, So it speaks to me the need to, in the church, and not just present this is what the lead pastor believes or this is what the denomination believes or this is what the tradition is, uh, but to present this is what we believe, this is why we believe it. And you know, and then and then when you have when you're informed on each side, then you, then you know if you still change your mind or you uh, maybe loosen your grip on a certain uh, dogmatism of a passage, that's fine. Uh, but you, I think we really have to begin with making sure within the church 
that we are appropriately, if we're leaders in the church, that we are appropriately teaching uh, the strength of a doctrine, uh, as well as as well as you know here are some other interpretive options this is why i think this is the strongest option this is why our denomination holds to this but we're also not going to demonize or um, perceive as non-christian people who believe something differently um you know obviously within the core of those second and third order doctrines what can churches do differently to kind of engage their lay people it's sort of an intellectual aspect of faith. One thing that I really think would be of value, especially if you're a pastor or you're, you know, you're regularly preaching or teaching in a local church, is, you know, when it comes to an issue, say, for instance, like eschatology, if you genuinely believe that the, the the most important thing, the orthodox thing, is to say, hey, Jesus is coming to make things right. But you also recognize that there are a number of other interpretive passages. I think it's a good and a valuable thing to say, hey, church, family, this is my perspective on this passage. There are other perspectives, and maybe unpack some of those, and then say, the reason why I hold to this position is, and 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 grant some freedom for disagreement within the local church itself. And I think that's a really valuable thing for people in churches, and particularly lay people, to hear from their pastor, is there is some room for disagreement there is some freedom for disagreement on this particular issue and 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 again to present a compelling case for why you hold that position but also say hey we might not completely know until Jesus comes back exactly how Jesus is going to come back you know and i think i think that sort of thing is really helpful for people to hear i i think the other thing is you know, churches should be encouraged to read from the tradition itself. And, you know, I, I know that we, our bread and butter often that when we do, you know, Bible studies is video-driven curriculum or newer materials. But, you know, C.S. Lewis famously said, for, for every new book you read, you should read an old book uh, in between, or at least uh, an old book for every other, you know, uh, new book you read, and I think I think there's some wisdom in that. You know, why don't we have our our our, our Bible study groups sit down with some help and some better translations, that sort of thing? Let's read on the Incarnation. Let's read Calvin. You know, let's read let's read from the giants of our own theological traditions, and I think those things can be very enriching. You know, especially when so much Bible study curriculum today is, you know, for lack of a better term, uncritical. It, it is valuable to hear some of those other voices. 
And that's not going to be everybody's cup of tea in a local church. I recognize that. You know, you got your your people that gravitate towards the intellectual that will do those sort of things, and other people will will not feel as comfortable with it. But I think if you if you if you sort of resource the church in that way, it would be um, extremely valuable to those who who take the time to to, to take that study up. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, last question for you, and, and then I'll let you go. Um, within the local church, we're going to have these differences of, of opinion on on some of these issues, um, in or even within denomination or within community. How how do we come together amid those differences and still say this is what we're united on? Here's where we can agree. Here's where we can come together. Um, how does the church facilitate that kind of unity amid all of the diversity uh, within the church? Well, I, it, in the in the context of a local church or a group of local I think churches. I think particularly within the context of a local church, because even sure. in my experience, uh, even the local church is not monolithic in sure, how absolutely. it many things. Sure, sure. Well, I think I think one thing that drives that is a confession. Um, you know, and, and, and taking the time to work through the said confession, um, again, the, the confession that, that most, most of the churches I've associated with is, is the Baptist faith and message, which is, I think for anybody who ever reads it is, is, is a pretty big tent document, though there's some specific things like eternal security and, Believers' baptism that are that are that are that are more focused and more narrow to my tradition, but I mean, like there is a lot of freedom on on for disagreement on various positions regarding um, regarding you know election or regarding you know um, eschatology, those sorts of things that we that we sometimes get heated about. I think we want to be driven by a common confession. Or at least a, a, an appeal to a creed, um, you know. Say, hey, we're 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 defining ourselves this way, and again, express some room for difference uh, on on things that that are not so plainly articulated in Scripture as important enough to be a dividing line. In my book, I talk about three tests that I think are really important for kind of deciding where a doctrine fits in, you know, your, 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 your list of priorities, whether or not it's orthodoxy on the line or whether it's just something that the Christians do have some freedom to agree to disagree about. The first test is the hermeneutical test. And, and what I mean by that is, is it something explicitly stated in Scripture or something that's very patently obvious in Scripture? And, you know, on those things, things that are repeated often, things like the gospel message itself, I think those fall into issues that we need to be united on and there is no room for disagreement. You know, the gospel itself, that Jesus has died for sinners, that Jesus is... Uh, is in fact truly God that Jesus is equal to the Father, those sorts of things, and then the gospel test itself i mean what what do you 
what do you use when you share the gospel? What is essential for sharing the gospel and, and for you as a, as a local body of believers? And I think we would all agree that, you know, it, it's not it's not part of the gospel message, at least. I don't think it, it has to be part of the gospel message because it's not biblically such. Uh, that Well, you have to believe the earth is 6,000 years as opposed to 10,000 years or, you know, four four and a half billion years old you know in order to become a christian uh that's that's adding burdens uh to to a person coming to faith sort of like what we see in in galatians uh with circumcision it's it's adding these intellectual obstacles or hurdles that people have to jump over before they can become christian we don't want to do that and then finally there's the practical test i mean when it comes to issues of church governance, we have to govern the church some way or some fashion. You know, the question is, can we can we align on our convictions about how we are going to govern the church? And uh, if we can't, then we can't really be together in a local church. Right. Yeah. And then we put all that together, and we are a mess of imperfect people, and we just kind of go about trying to follow Jesus the best that we can, the best that we know. That's right. Well, understanding right. that we're completely imperfect and working towards that um, our whole lives. Well, uh, Dr. Putman, I want to thank you for taking time to be on thank the podcast you so much, today. Uh, again, uh, the book is When Doctrine Divides the People of God by Dr. Ryan Putman. It's published by Crossway. You can pick it up at their website or on Amazon or contact your local independent bookstore and ask them for this title. I'm sure they'd be happy to oblige to get it for you. Uh, this book is um, very thorough. Um, it, it really made me think about the way in which, and what causes us to have different um, different divisions and different interpretations. And I think that it's a conversation that is needed in the church. It is a conversation that is needed to bring about unity in the church. Because when we understand areas in which we divide, when we understand areas in which we have disagreements, and we understand the background to those disagreements and the importance of those disagreements, we can then focus on being united and um, showing the love of Christ to our brother, showing the love of Christ to, to our neighbor, and uh, focus on actually being united as a people of God instead of divided. So Dr. Putman, thank you for your time. Thank you, Josh. I appreciate it.